It's great to be with you. Uh, if you were here last week, Steve kicked off a series recording, Follow Me. And I'm going to jump straight in. Right at the heartbeat of the series is this idea that Jesus calls you not just to want to free you from the past, want to free us from our sin and forgive us, but then calls us to follow him and that he wants to be Lord of our lives, not just Savior. And one of the challenges of being a Christian, and some of you would have been through that moment in your life where you became a Christian, others of you here, you may be just seeking and asking questions, is there something in this, which is great, you should do that, come on Alpha. Uh, But one of the challenges about being a Christian is it's great becoming a believer and feeling like God's accepted me, but one of the great challenges is actually living out being a believer, because you find you have to live it out in a world that doesn't necessarily believe all the things you believe, Right? We find that following, you know, saying yes to Jesus is the easy part, living it out is the harder part. Because we live in a world that doesn't necessarily believe what we believe or think the way we think. In fact, what we find out is that you increasingly become as a Christian in the world what the Bible describes as a foreigner and an alien. So before you were a Christian, the world seemed normal, culture seemed normal, the world was the place that you just did your thing. Suddenly you become a Christian and you want to follow Jesus, and you find that the world actually becomes, feels a bit just disjointed to what you believe. The world doesn't have the same kind of values as you do as a Christian, and you find that you're feeling slightly somehow like foreign or alienated from the culture, and that's exactly what the Bible says happens. You become a foreigner and an alien because you are surrounded by a secular culture that is not fundamentally Christian. Now, not everybody in, in the room today would have grown up in a Western society, but we all live in Western society, and we live in a Western secular culture. And Western secular culture is, at best, indifferent to Christianity. It can be intoxicating as a draw away from Christianity, and sometimes, increasingly, it's even aggressively against Christian values. Have you noticed that? And it's like, as a Christian, you live in this cultural ocean, I'm going to use the picture of an ocean today, which is full of currents and tides which want to push you and pull you. And one of the challenges of being a Christian and following Jesus is how we live in the cultural ocean, which is the world, and how we navigate that and follow Jesus through it. And I want to talk about that today, and I want to pick out, if you like, four things that I think as a believer, if you're a Christian here today or if you're thinking about becoming a Christian that are really important for you to understand and think about when it thinks about the culture and the secular culture that we live in. And the first thing is this, that the ocean, the culture we live in, has currents. I don't know if you've ever been down to the beach, and you go down to the beach, and some beaches, right on the front of the beach, there's warnings up, there's signs up saying there are dangerous tides here or dangerous currents. You ever seen those? Yeah, I've swam in one or two of those, and you suddenly get, you're in there and you get pulled somewhere else, And you see these signs saying, it has currents, be careful. And one of the keys to following Jesus, you know, in the secular world, is being aware that the culture we live in has strong currents. And awareness of the currents is key. Now, the culture we live in has numerous different kind of cultural values and strengths, but there are probably three big cultural currents that I want to talk about or just mention to you because awareness is key. Freedom, they've been around a long time. The first one is power. The second one is materialism. And the third one is sex. These are not new. In the ancient world, they knew about them. They just gave them different names. They gave them Mars, the god of war. Mammon, the god of money. And Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love. If you've 
ever read any Freud or Marx or Nietzsche, you'll know that they each picked out one of these and talked about them being major uh, cultural influences which affects our behavior in more modern world. Now, the culture we live in, the secular world we cultured, are, is dominated, if you like, by those three big themes. So we are told, aren't we, by culture, that if you have more money, if you have more sex with more people, if you just climb higher and higher up the ladder of power and prestige, you'll be satisfied, you'll be more peaceful, you'll be happier, and you'll discover more and more fulfillment. Those are the, that's the big cultural messages of the world we live in. You only have to leave... Uh, today, drive down the road, you'll see billboards which say that to you. You switch your TV on, you'll see adverts which say the same thing. All around us are powerful cultural messages which tell us those things. And maybe even as a Christian right now, you think, actually, the truth is, uh, some of those messages have become so powerful, they've swept me away. I remember getting on a beach with my kids once, and we went bodyboarding, and I remember getting in the sea at this point, and then about half an hour getting out of the sea, and we found we'd just moved about a quarter of a mile down the beach, and I hadn't even realized because the current had just dragged us across. And it was so kind of like incremental and so kind of like negligible each movement that we didn't even notice. And that's what can happen to you as a Christian. You live in a society, you're in an ocean, a cultural ocean, which has strong messages and currents, which if you're not aware of them, will pull you. You know, you could be here today and thinking, well, you know, if I'd asked you 10 years ago would you, what kind of life you'd have lived, you would never be, end up describing the life you're living today. You'd end up living in a way and adopting a lifestyle that you never thought you would, probably because mainly the culture has swept you down the beach. So awareness is key that we live in a secular culture that has strong cultural messages which are not always conducive and often are not conducive to the gospel message. Jesus comes, doesn't he, and says, actually, fulfillment and freedom comes from me alone. Jesus says again and again in the gospel, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, he's saying, I know about money. I'm going to tell you about uh, relationships. I'm going to tell you about boundaries. I'm going to tell you about your time. Jesus says, I know how these things all work. I made them all. I know what's good for you and what's not good for you. I know where these things are good and when they become harmful. So the ocean has currents. And if you want to follow Jesus beyond the point of just saying yes to him and follow him into the world, you have to become aware, what is the culture that I live in? What are the strong cultural themes that I have to negotiate? That's the first one. Here's the second one. Jesus calls you into the ocean. Jesus calls you, says, follow me, and then he calls you into the ocean. In other words, into the culture. You see, for some Christians... When we realize how dangerous the world is, when we realize what the potential is to be swept away, to be caught up with like cultural thinking, to find our values shifted without even noticing, when we realize how dangerous it is, some of us just decide, you know, the, the best thing to ensure that I don't compromise at all is never to go in the sea. I'm going to sit on the beach, I watch other people swim, but I'm never going in the ocean because if I don't go in the ocean, I don't get swept away, right? That's the safest place. And that's what Christians can do. We can all do that. Christians sometimes want to retreat from the world. They want to retreat from normal life. In Jesus' time, there was a bunch of people who did this called the Essenes. Um, they, they're not mentioned in the Bible, but they were there when Jesus was there. 
And they became so uh, kind of dissatisfied with the culture of their time, not just Roman culture, because Israel was under occupation, but um, Jewish culture. They felt things had kind of become so defiled, they withdrew. They geographically withdrew. They went and lived in, in the desert. They slept in caves. They gave them lives to a life of kind of austerity and purity, which sounds good in one sense, but they totally withdrew from Jewish life. They are the people who are, they, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they reckoned it was found amongst that community. And they were so austere that apparently they had a rule that on the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to go to the toilet. Okay? So think carefully about having a coffee at the end of the service, okay? They withdrew. You see it in monastic communities. Now, lots of amazing things have come out of monastic communities, lots of educational things. But in effect, it's a withdrawal. And even regular Christians in regular churches can do the same thing. We can adopt the attitude that, okay, I might have to work in the world, but in effect, the rest of my life, and I might have to shop there, I'm going to withdraw and retreat into a Christian bubble. In effect, I'm going to spend all the rest of my life in a kind of Christian culture and not go in the sea. Yeah, so we retreat. We only watch God TV. We only listen to worship music. We only read Christian books. We go to the church building every day or as much as possible. We only eat Christian food, primarily quiche. We speak Christian language. We use words like vestibule. What is that word? No one knows where that is in the church. We use language that the rest of the world can't understand. We wear Christian clothes, socks, and sandals. We retreat for normal life. And to the rest of the world, we become irrelevant and weird. Now, I exaggerate, but you understand, right? The point is, though, (laughs) Jesus says, yeah, the ocean is full of, like, dangerous currents and tides, and you need to know what they are, and now you need to follow me back into the sea. Jesus says to the disciples, leave your nets, follow me, and then when does he lead them? He leads them straight back into the world he's just called them out of. The difference is, Jesus says, I want you to follow me into it. So in John 17, he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So in the world, but not of it. Jesus calls you into the ocean. That's the second point. Here's the third one. In the ocean, Jesus calls you to swim. In other words, to get right involved. Obviously, you have to use your intelligence as to how you apply this point. But Jesus calls you to swim. When you go to the beach sometimes, not only do you see signs saying dangerous currents, but other times you go to the beach and there'll be people, particularly men, it seems to me, who will go in the water, but they only go in so far, right? They might paddle a bit, but basically often they can't make up their mind whether they want to swim. Have you ever seen this? And they go in about waist high and they kind of walk around hoping that somehow they might acclimatize to the water and hoping some horrible kid doesn't splash them too much. And they kind of go in there and they can't work out whether to swim or not because it's so cold. Yeah. So what they do, they're there for 10 minutes, then they splash their hair with water, throw a bit on there, and they come out and they tell their family they've all been for a swim. Right? <laughs> but they never get in the ocean. They kind of paddle and wade a bit, but they never get in and swim. But Jesus calls you not just to enter the ocean. In other words, not just to get in the culture, but to swim. And if you're going to swim in the ocean, you have to navigate the cultural currents of the ocean. If you don't do that, if you don't learn how to swim out in the world as a Christian, okay, you will become what John Piper describes. He's an American writer, theologian. Uh, You'll become what John Piper describes as like a kind of Christian jellyfish. Jellyfish don't swim, they just drift. Yeah? If there's a storm, 
big waves, often they you get jellyfish washed up on a beach because they just drift wherever the culture takes them. It's possible as a Christian, if you've never learned how to swim in the culture, in a foreign culture, to just get washed up wherever culture takes you. You end up just adopting what everybody else has adopted. Your view on relationships, your view on money, your view on boundaries. It's just whatever everybody else does. And you drift. And it doesn't matter what Jesus says to you. You just drift with everybody else. It's like you're a Christian jellyfish. It's very easy to do that. And yet Jesus calls you into the ocean to swim. John Piper says he calls you to be more of a dolphin than a jellyfish. I found that a really helpful picture. In Romans 8, Paul says we're called to be more than conquerors. In Galatians, it says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. In Romans 12, it says don't conform in your thinking to the rest of the world. In other words, this is the picture of not someone drifting, but someone who's swimming. Someone who learns to navigate and find their way through the currents and not be swept by just the world the world tells you. Now, if you want to learn how to swim in the ocean... What is key is that you learn to kind of be able to map what the Bible says about your life and how you should live and what culture tells you. And you need to be able to discern what culture is saying, be aware of it, like we said, and then you need to kind of go, well, what does the Bible say? Where where are these two in conflict? Where do they overlap? Where do they blend? And you need to map one against the other. And you need to be able to work out on issues like money and relationships and all sorts of issues What is just culture and contextualization? In other words, it's just normal and neutral to do that, to have a phone, for example. And what is compromise and sinful? What is contextualization? And what is compromise? And part of following Jesus, part of learning, if you like, to swim in the ocean, is learning to work out what is contextualization and normal and fine, and what is compromise, and it's not fine. Let me give you an example. I've never spoken on this before, and I probably will never speak on this one again. Okay, what should Christians do? What should their approach be to the issue of fashion? As you can tell, I've thought about this a lot myself. Now, now what you decide, when you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't give you lots of like, specific things on all the different issues of life. It's not a list of rules. When Christians make the Bible a list of rules, it kills it. Not a book of rules, but there are kingdom principles built into the Bible which you then apply into your context and your culture. Okay, so what does the Bible tell us in terms of fashion? Okay, well, 1 Peter 3 says this Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's. Sight. What is he saying in this passage? Listen, he's not saying to be a proper Christian, you need to be as ugly as possible. Okay? Go and buy the worst clothes in the world. He's not saying that. He's not saying there's something wrong with people wearing nice clothes. What he's saying is what is of real value is who you are, not how you look. Now, we live in a culture, we swim in an ocean, which says what's of real value is how you look, not who you are. Right? So how do I map what the Bible says to me about fashion against what the culture is telling me about fashion? And what do I do? Okay, well, let me give you a suggestion on that one. 
If when you think about this issue, what you discover is you are fairly obsessed with the issue of fashion. You think about it all the time. Uh, you're forever reading magazines about it. You spend most of your money on it. You're maybe in debt because of it. You've maxed your credit card again on fashion. It's like you just can't help. You know, retail is like a hobby. Okay? And, and it's become like an addictive thing. You spend all your time comparing yourself to somebody else. You are increasingly depressed about the passing of time and your, the aging process in your body, in your face. If you, know, if you know that all those things are true of you, what you'll discover is probably what has happened is fashion has become an idol for you. And idols are things that we bow down to, we sacrifice for. And this is a horrible idol to bow to because it will never be satisfied, by the way. So if that's you and you know you're there, you don't have any money left, you don't have any money to be generous, you never give, then you are in compromise then you're in something that Jesus wants you to get you out of, that you weren't born for that. If, however, you don't have that at all, for you it's like, you know, you feel fairly secure about the way you look, you probably like to look a bit better or taller, but you're okay. It doesn't dictate how you live your life. You don't spend all your money on it. You have, you're able to be generous. In other words, it's not an idol for you. Then fashion is fine. As long as you're modest and appropriate, then fashion could be fine. In other words, it could be, there could be no compromise and you could be completely relevant culturally or you could be completely relevant culturally and full of compromise. And to swim in the ocean takes a degree of intelligence and a degree of thoughtfulness where you go, I'm going to learn to map what does the Bible say and what is culture telling me? And how do I follow Jesus in this so I make good decisions? It's part of learning how to swim. Here's the last thing. Jesus doesn't call you just to be aware of the ocean. He doesn't call you just to come into the ocean or even just to swim in the ocean. Jesus calls you to care for the ocean. In other words, Jesus calls you and I to care for the culture that we live in, to care for the secular culture. Often we Christians and pastors especially, we're concerned primarily about the church and the culture of the church, and that's important, right? Absolutely. But actually, there's a wider responsibility on humans and on Christians, which is to care for the culture of the world that we live in. In the theologically rich film, Finding Nemo, okay, Marlin is looking for his son Nemo. Nemo's gone off, he's been captured, and Marlin's looking for him. And the whole film is about trying to find him. I understand that. If my son had been taken through an ocean, I would be looking for him as well. But basically, Marlin is single-minded, Tunnel vision, I'm looking for my son. He doesn't really think about anybody else or anything else. Christians can be a bit like that, right? Okay, I'm going to swim in the ocean, but I've just got to get through. I mustn't compromise. I don't want to sin. I'm just going to get through, and it's not my job to fix the world. I've just got to swim. At the end of the film, Marlin finds Nemo. I don't want to spoil the film for any of you if you've never seen it before, but possibly he finds him, maybe. And if by chance he does find him, if that scenario did happen to happen in the film, and by some chance they were reunited, possibly, um, there's a bit in the film where Nemo, basically their friend Dory, gets caught in a big fishing net with a whole bunch of other fish, and and she's caught. Now Marlin and Nemo have been, you know, reunited. The film's done. But Nemo puts himself right in the middle of the net, right in danger's way, and says, I'm going to get the fish to swim down, swim down, swim down. I want to change the direction of the fish. I want to get them all down so we get them all out. 
Okay? Jesus calls you to be far more like Nemo than Marlin. Because Christians can be like, I'm just going to navigate through my world, do my private Christianity, I'll go to church, and I won't care about, it's not my, it's not my job. It, it is our job. Now, how you do that is another issue, okay? And I'm no expert. But I want to say a few things about how we do that. Because Jesus says in Matthew 5, you're called to be salt and light. What that means is you're called to preserve things that are good and you're called to illuminate things which are not good. There is a responsibility on us, if you like, to care about the ocean. Two or three things to think about when you think, well, how do we do that? What does that mean? What does that mean for a teacher? What does that mean for somebody in a hospital? What does that mean as a mum or a dad? Or what does that mean? That's all this. You have to recognize, first of all, all of us are culture makers. Sometimes in the Christian world, we talk about this kind of issue, and it becomes the kind of realm of like the Christian academics. So some people are particularly called to culture making and influence, and maybe some people are, but everybody is a culture maker. We all make culture. Okay? The Latin word, the original Latin word for culture, is basically to not leave nature as it was. So that's where we get the word agriculture from, which is basically we work the land, we take the raw materials of the land, and we try and produce something that we eat. Okay? And all culture-making is that. It's taking raw materials, rearranging it, working it, and bringing something else out. So when you make music, okay, we take noise, and you rearrange the noise, and you create music. It's incredible. That's cultural-making. And in every area of life, that's the same thing, and we all do it. Adam and Eve, in Genesis, are given the role of culture-makers. Okay? They're called to have dominion over creation. They can name the animals. They're given permission to recreate. They effectively, they garden. Okay? They are making culture, good and then obviously bad, when the fall takes place. And all of us do it. Some of us do it in high-profile places in the secular world. The Bible calls Christians into that. You read through the Old Testament, Esther, Joseph, Daniel. They are all influence at high levels of society. Sometimes they confront. Sometimes they work for. Okay, but they're in there. But most of us are not there. Most of us are in our own worlds, in like a smaller kind of spheres. But all of us, even in our own spheres, create and influence culture. Okay? In my family, I am responsible for creating a culture in my family. In my workplace, I help influence the culture of my workplace. In your workplace, that's what you do. As you swim, if you like, through the ocean, you will create your own little current You need to care for the ocean. So first of all, we need to understand all of us are culture makers. It's all our job. And we're to care for the ocean. Secondly, this. I think all of us need an understanding that culture, secular culture, but any kind of culture, okay, Western, Eastern, whatever culture you're from, every aspect, of every type of culture has good aspects in it and bad aspects. This is because... Theologically, every human being, whether they are a Christian or not, are all made in God's image and have God's stamp, his DNA stamped in you. So all Christians have, or all, all people have God's DNA stamped in them, but also all people are fallen, in other words, sinful. It's distorted. They've got God's image, but it's distorted. Given that all people make culture, what it means is every bit of culture we make is both resonates something and represents something of who God is, and it's distorted and fallen as well. 
This is true of unbelievers and Christians, by the way, which is really important that we know that. So we all create culture, and every bit of culture has something of God in it, something that points to who God is, and something which is fallen. So let me give you some examples. Think about music. Okay? You can have music written by someone who's not a believer, but that music is so incredibly powerful and beautiful, okay? it reminds you as you listen to it that there's something, someone transcendent. Yeah? What's happening? Well, this unbeliever has pointed towards the fact that God exists. Behind the music maker is a creator. Okay? You can have a film made by someone who's not a believer, who rejects the idea of God, and yet the film is so powerful and so creatively portrayed that it points again and again to the idea that this surely, what I can see and touch, cannot be all that there is to life. Okay? You can read a book or listen to a lecture. You, can listen, you could go and listen to Richard Dawkins, who's an aggressive atheist who has huge influence, okay? whose content is anti-God and anti-religion and anti-Christian. Okay, and you can listen to him, and you have to recognize this guy's got a huge brain, a phenomenal, academic, amazing ability. Who gave him the brain? There's something in it, even in his, although his content is so anti, that resonates that there's something more, which would really annoy him, I suspect. Okay? <laughs> all culture, all secular culture has good and bad. In other words, this, the ocean may have very dangerous currents, there may be riptides which seek to pull you this way and that, but it's still God's ocean. And you and I are to care for it. Now, why this is so important is this, okay? If we understand that, we're all culture makers, we understand that there's something of God's stamp in all culture, and also there's something fallen about all culture, it should affect the tone in which we engage with the culture. It should affect the tone in which you engage with the culture in your workplace, Okay? or the, the, the tone in which you, you know, address the culture, wherever you are tomorrow. It should affect your tone, because the message is not just what you say, it's how you say it. it the message is often the messenger more than the message, if that makes sense. And Christians need to be winsome and intelligent and thoughtful when it comes to addressing secular culture. Okay? So if you believe, actually, there is good and bad in secular culture, it points towards something of God, but it's also fallen, it means this, three things. First of all, this. It means it will restrain the Christian from being over-triumphalistic and over-confrontational. Because not all secular culture is bad. Okay? And it's a simple thing for a Christian to go, well, we've got God's kingdom and there's nothing good there. And that becomes potentially confrontational and quite triumphalistic. The world won't want to hear that. Okay, you've, got to, you've got to say it in a way. Now, there is a place for Christians to be confrontational. You know, in history, Christians had to stand up about the slave trade. So there are moments, but you've got to find a way of speaking into the world in a way that you get heard. So it just restrains the sense of being over-triumphalistic or over-confrontational. Secondly, it means this. If you believe there's good things and bad things in culture, it means it stops you as a Christian swallowing everything that culture gives, gives you. Okay, So when it comes to things like uh, money, fashion, social media, relationships, if you're a parent, how your kids use social media, just because everybody else is using it that way doesn't mean you should swallow it and do it as well. Because you need to map, well, this is what culture's saying, but ah, I've got to, 
This is what I think the, Jesus says about this. And how do I blend this? How am I clever? How am I winsome about this? Lastly, this. It means if you believe there's good and bad in both and that we're called to care for the ocean, it means that when Jesus says in Matthew 5, we're to be salt and light, it stops you from withdrawing. The world doesn't need a church which just withdraws from the culture. Okay, that's not the call on us. The world doesn't need a church who just thinks it's not our responsibility to be involved in it. It's absolutely our responsibility. I want to finish by this. I want to leave you one other thought. Okay, I haven't mapped this all through my own thinking yet, but I think there's something in us. It's interesting to me that when Jesus walks on the earth, people misunderstood when he talked about the kingdom of God. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, people were getting very excited because the Jews were waiting for someone to basically reestablish what David had, a political kingdom, a, a geographical kingdom, where basically God's rules were like followed by everybody. And they wanted that back. And the Jews were under occupation from the Romans, so they wanted this king to kick the Romans out and just, let's go back to where we were with David. And they knew the Messiah was in David's line, so there's like... Now, when someone got to know Jesus, they're thinking, this is the guy. He's, he's the king. And they were right. He was. He is. But not the king they expected. They wanted to, on Palm Sunday, they wanted to get him elected. They wanted to force the Romans out. They wanted to put him on the throne. And they wanted him to enforce on everybody God's kingdom rule. Jesus has the opportunity to do that, and Jesus refuses to do it. That's interesting to me. I'm not sure God is after enforcing on the world his kingdom rule in that way. Jesus seems to come and say, actually, I am a king, but my kingdom is a different type of kingdom. And God does come to transform the world and transform the culture, but he does it in a different way, not by enforcing, but by birthing from within. So if you become a Christian, what happened is God's done something from birthing from within. Not because someone's enforced some Christian rules on you. In fact, when someone tried to enforce Christian rules on you, it just made you not want to be a Christian. But when Jesus comes and births something from within you, it's like, ah, oh, okay. He starts to write his kingdom and his rules and his, his values on your heart. That's what the Old Testament says. And it starts to come alive. And that's how the kingdom is birthed. And the more Christians that are birthed like that, and go out and swim in the ocean, it seems to me transformation is far more possible in a culture where we swim. So you get one life. You get to choose as to whether to follow Jesus or not. It's your choice. You get a sphere of influence that God gives you, your workplace, your business, your family, whatever it is. You get to help create culture one way or the other. We all do it. And in the middle of it, I think Jesus says, don't miss it. Like, don't blow it. Don't just be drifted and pulled across by one way or the other. And if you know God is speaking to you today, don't miss the chance to respond to him as you sense his voice.